You're listening to Renegade Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us on How Can This Happen? How Can This Happen is a series of mystery things that have happened across the country. What we're doing here is exploring them and asking questions because we don't always have all the facts. What I want to do is get as much information as I possibly can about these mysteries and possibly why they happened, or maybe even we're not sure that it happened the way they told us it did. The first topic today is regarding mental illness. I have a friend with me that I wanted to ask about this because it's such a serious issue. There are so many people that have mental illnesses today, and my theory is simple. I believe there are outside forces in everyday life that are creating us to have mental problems. But what we're going to do is explore that with my friend Nancy Reynolds. She is presently in private practice in Los Angeles as a psychotherapist. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed professional clinical counselor. She worked in inpatient behavioral health unit in a Los Angeles area hospital for 18 years, treating adolescents and adult patients with severe mental health issues and or suicidal or homicidal mandatory hospitalizations. So with that, I'd like to bring her on because I have a few questions that I'd like to pose to her. Good morning, Nancy. Hi, Betsy. Thanks so much for inviting me today. Thank you so much for joining me because I believe that you're a great source of information. Some of it should come from your background in dealing with the behavioral health unit in Los Angeles. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, um, working in an inpatient psychiatric unit is, uh, you know, you're dealing with, compared to what I'm doing now in, in terms of private practice, it's really um, it's so different because inpatient is for the somebody that really needs help and perhaps is in crisis. And uh, my experience was vast. And as I said, um, we talked before this, you know, I, I dealt with adolescents, uh, adults, and then severely um, geriatric patients that might be that were going through uh, mental health and perhaps dementia and Alzheimer's as well. And even over the last, say, 20 years, things have changed just dramatically. And, um, and today, and I was just in, in preparing a little bit for this interview, there's so much emphasis today on mental health. 20 years ago, it was, it was even difficult to get help. It was difficult to get services. It was kind of secretive. Um, people didn't want to talk about it or acknowledge it that they had a mental health problem. There was also, in, you know, so a lot has changed. Today, if you go on to, like, any of the uh, hospital websites or, like, Kaiser or UCLA, you know, there's just a vast array of resources and help available today. There's apps, you know, there's uh, telehealth. So, so there's, it's changing rapidly. 
And Nancy, do you think that that is in maybe the last 10 years? Do you think that the pandemic helped to create a greater awareness because of what happened as a result of the shutdown? That, and I also think that all the vast uh, uh, school shootings have, you know, has over the last, I don't know, has it been 10 years, 15 years, whatever it's been, there's been so much attention to the mental, to mentally ill, to homelessness, to drug addiction. And so many times, you know, mental illness and drug addiction, substance abuse are, you know, so, you know, tied in together. And then you've got the homeless issue, which is huge. So there's so many different factors. You also have social media, which has spread the word. And also the fact that so many celebrities and sports figures have come out and addressed the mental health uh, problems. So the stigma of mental illness isn't what it used to be. Which is if that makes sense. That does make sense. But how? What percentage of homelessness is directly related to mental illness? You know, I don't. I don't have that figure. I wish I did. Um, you know, in Los Angeles, we, which is a huge problem here, we have, I don't know, 65,000 or so on the streets. I don't know what percentage would be mentally ill and what percentage would be drug, substance abuse or both or economic. I, I don't have that figure. But um, you certainly see, you know, on the street, many, many people uh, that are, are, you know, obviously mentally ill. They're struggling with all yeah, kinds and they of issues. Provide for yeah, and you know they right. can't. Pro- we, our hospitals would be jammed full of all mental health patients because one of the, the criteria for mandatory, the fifty-two hour or seventy-two hour hold is it's called a fifty-one fifty is not to be able to provide for food, clothing, and shelter. Mm-hmm. So they're gravely disabled. Oh. So there's many people on the streets that are gravely disabled, and uh, in our hospitals would be full if we took every single you know gravely disabled patient. So, so it um, could be the factor of the disabilities combined with mental health, but the disabilities are going to relate, are going to be a factor for the mental health issue. Is that possible? When you say disability, what are you talking about? Let's say that I um, have trouble walking or I, I'm missing a leg or I'm um, hearing impaired. Does that contribute to my mental illness? Well, I'm sure that it, I don't know that, to, you know, there's physical illness and there's mental illness. And I think that if someone is physically disabled, they're going to probably be bordering, you know, on depression. They're probably depressed to some degree about their situation until they can manage that situation better. Right. But, um, so, I mean, you know, there's also people that, you know, have, you know, that are mentally ill because, they have a chemical imbalance and they have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or things of that nature. Um, so, you know, there's, so are, is that, that's brought on by, you know, genetics as opposed to environmental. Okay. If you're all of a sudden, uh, let's say you're a, a normal person and you lost your job and you lost your housing and you lost your car and all of a sudden you find yourself homeless I mean, I would be depressed, wouldn't you? you know? Absolutely. So that adds to it as well. So so that's a factor in being uh, mental illness. Um, 
But I think what, what's happening today is all these, you know, for years, nobody talked about mental illness. And it wasn't even treated with like the insurance companies and the same parity. You know, you got much, if you had a physical problem, you broke a leg, you, you got to go into the hospital. If you were mentally ill, you didn't always get benefits. You weren't always mm-hmm. able to get treated. Did so that now, change? I think, Did that change? It's changed. Okay. Yes, it's changing rapidly. And you also have to remember that, you know, like in 1960, I think is when the psychotropic uh, medication came in. And okay. before that time, uh, you know, we didn't have the tranquil or the, uh, you know, the medication to treat the mentally ill. And that's all gotten better. It's, it's almost like psychopharmacology has changed the treatment of mentally ill, the mental illness too. So, so lots of things have changed in the last 50 years. I mean, when you think about 100 years ago, they used to lock people up in mental institutions and give them, you know, cold showers and, 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 and then maybe 50 or 60 years ago, shock treatments. And they still do electric, um, you know, they do the shock treatments today, but they're much more civilized. So medication and treatment has, has really changed mental illness, too, in the last, say, 50 years, 100 years. So we're finally acknowledging that this is yeah. something that has a pervasive effect on society. Definitely. And, okay. you know, there's also people that are functionally mentally ill. I mean, you can be depressed and still work. You can be anxious and still work. It's you can be schizophrenic and still work as long as you and, and, and be functioning in society as long as you're getting the proper treatment. That's interesting. Are any is there anyone in your sphere of clients that are at all close to that, or are most of them pretty high functioning? The clients that you have today. Well, my, in my private practice, everybody's high-functioning. But in dealing with people in the hospital, I dealt with many, many people that um, came into the hospital because they were not, but they were certainly, after treatment, able to. Because oftentimes, somebody will go into the hospital for inpatient, and they may be there for three to five days or two weeks, and then they come out and they go to an intensive outpatient program, and they're following up with medication and therapy and a treatment plan that helps them get back into their normal functioning. Wow. So, so well, but, this you know, is that's so totally different than homeless people that are on the street that can't, that are not able to get that same kind of care. So it's their economic situation that causes that because economically, or is it the mental illness that causes them to be homeless? Both, I guess. I, I guess it could be both, but I mean, let's put it this way: if you have if you have the money to to manage your mental health, then when you get out of the hospital, or if you're having a breakdown of some sort, or if you if you're in crisis, you can come home and you still have food, clothing, and shelter. If you're having a mental health issue and you're hospitalized, and then you're you're discharged and you're discharged back to the streets or because you don't have any place to go or a shelter wherever, you know, wherever you are, mm-hmm. uh, then your mental health, then your stress is, is still high, you know, then so yeah. the high level of stress is certainly going to add to the, to mental illness. Wow. Well, so, I wanted know, it's really to go. Compli- and complicated issue. It really is very, very complicated. And, and then the support, you know, do you go back to a family that's supportive or are you out there alone? True. 
and a lot of people are out there alone today. Yeah. I have yeah. And whether quick... they're living with by themselves or living on the streets alone. I mean, su- support and caring is, is very, and having a purpose um, and having hope is really what it's all about to help solve this problem. Oh, what a great thought. It, it's just the lack of hope. People don't know yeah. which and then way you have to the turn. Suicide that's, you mm-hmm. have suicide, which is totally on the rise. Well, that and, was a uh, subject that I wanted to broach with you because I had seen a story um, a long time ago, actually, because I consider 2014, like, not yesterday, but way the day before yesterday. Anyway, in 2014, the senator in Virginia had a son who was very high-functioning. He had, um, his name was Deeds. He um, ran for governor in the state of Virginia. And his son took some time off from William and Mary College to help him run his campaign. So um, his son, Gus, was very smart. He had a great um, promise to be musical. He had, uh, he played the banjo left-handed. He had um, some great um, talents that he could use, but he was also very smart. So Gus went and helped his dad on the campaign trail, and then after it was a failed attempt by Deeds to win the governorship, then what happened is he Gus stayed out of school the next semester, and he had told his father that he wanted to commit suicide. So his father was really concerned, and they sought to get him help. Well, once they did that, he had gone to the hospital to check himself in, and there wasn't a 72-hour hold. I believe that that is what you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. So they turned him away. The next day, he went back to his dad's farm. His dad went to the barn to feed the chickens, and he came up behind his dad and stabbed him in the face. It's all documented. You can look it up. So that's when his father ran and called 911, and they got him on a helicopter and took him to Charlottesville for treatment. And when he was in the helicopter, he heard the police say there was another victim. And the victim was Gus, and he committed suicide. So that's when Deeds went to all of the assembly in Virginia and said, you have to place a longer hold. You can't just release them, especially if they're in crisis. Well, I'm kind of confused there. You said he went in by himself and was, was went to intake and he wasn't admitted. Is that what you're saying? He the went to intake admitted. and they didn't have a bed, so they turned him away. And that was in 2014. That was before. Yeah. Well, they were not yeah. very adequate in terms of treating these people. They were very well, that, inadequate. Yeah. yeah, but you're talking about, you know, I don't I can't speak to that because that's a, you know, that's a different state, a different hospital and everything. Right. You know, so in every state has their own laws. Correct. There's not federal laws. Um, But generally from my experience, if someone comes into the hospital, uh, 
there's a huge there's an intake where someone is evaluated to to if they're suicidal homicidal or gravely disabled and sometimes patients are forced to go in by their family members and they they don't tell the truth and they say no I'm not suicidal I'm not homicidal I'm not this and that and then they don't get admitted you're telling me that this particular person said that he was having a problem and they didn't admit him is and they correct? didn't admit him because they didn't have a bed right yeah. but so I, I if know, they do tragic it was totally tragic because uh, he felt that his son could have been saved. And maybe he could have. You know, we don't know. But one thing we do know, Nancy, is that if he had gone in crisis to, that, um, to the hospital, and then the hospital didn't keep him for 72 hours, would that have helped? Well, number one, if he was admitted on a hold, they'd have to keep him for 72 hours. Okay. And number two, if he was still suicidal after the 72 hours, they would put him on another hold. There's there's, there's like three different holds you can do. Okay. And um, number three, if he was suicidal for the first 72 hours and then he wasn't after 72 hours, he could go back on the street and feel good for two days, but then become suicidal and three days later and kill himself. Correct. So there's no guarantee that he's going to go in the hospital and be in the hospital for 70, certainly that he's going to be in the hospital for 72 hours and be cured. He may just get in, you know, go in for 72 hours and at least get on the right medication and be stabilized. Right. But, but if he my, to go, yeah, my understanding you know, was that they did not have that long a hold at the time in 2014. Well, I, and I, so I, he changed it, that through legislation. Yeah. Right. I don't know because I've been working when I worked in the early 2000s. We always had 72-hour holds here in California. Oh, so that okay. That may not be the case in. Uh, Apparently, Virginia, it wasn't but, in Virginia, right? Uh -huh. Okay. Uh -huh. Okay, I get it. However, there are so many aspects of it, and I'm not sure that that doctors are even capable of keeping up with everything that's happening in the area of mental health. Do you feel like it's kind of overwhelming at times? Yes, but I'll tell you, it's gotten so much better. I mean, I cannot believe the help that, that we have today that we didn't have 20 years ago. Great. For example, if you go into um, any, like UCLA or the, the Kaiser apps, they have, they have where to go, what to do. Uh, they have a, if you have anxiety, you can download Calm. It's an app that helps you with calmness. There's resources for anxiety. There's re resources for parenting stress. There's resourcing sources for addiction. Uh, we have now, which is a wonderful thing that I want to bring up, we have the new federal national suicide hotline, 988. Because what was happening, 911 was getting so crowded with all these you know, emergencies that they, and mental health was such a big thing that they created this 988 National Mental Health Hotline. Oh hotline. my God, that's so amazing. that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful and, thing. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's very hopeful. And so I think that all these smart, caring people out there that are now, because of all the attention given to mental health, as I brought up earlier with the celebrities and the, and the sports people and just everybody in general, 
recognizing that mental health is a huge, huge crisis, um, that they're addressing it and they're getting more help today than they ever have. That makes me feel really good, Nancy. Thank you so much. I'm yeah. going to so, wrap I mean, this up, but I can't so that, believe how helpful that was. Yeah, 988, it's, a, it's, a, it's there and it, people should use it. Absolutely, they should, without a doubt. Well, you're an amazing person. You have an amazing career. I'm happy you're out there to treat people, to help them. And um, we really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Thanks, Beth. Thank you. you. Good to talk to you. Thank you. That was Nancy Reynolds that we were speaking to regarding mental health. She's an amazing resource for people who need help, need assistance. And she gave us some really good information because we don't want to explore any stories on how can this happen that are related to people who are suicidal or having mental problems. We want to be able to see if the way that our medical society is working today, that we can have people available that can help with all of these problems. It really is important, but it's also something that I feel has to be addressed. We have to be compassionate about people who have mental problems. So thank you for joining me today on how can this happen. We're going to be exploring some other areas of mental health in the future as we go along. But thank you for coming and seeing what we had to offer you today.